Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Sean Johnson. You're listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on which we are discussing uh, sin. Uh, we're discussing the diary of a country <laughs> priest. Uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, and uh, we're going to talk about chapters three and four this week. So we're we'll about halfway through the book um, in this section. I was thinking about where to begin with this conversation. And a number of possibilities came to mind. So I could ask such questions as the following. I could ask questions like, what is this book about? Or does this book have a plot? Or how do you help people who are having trouble with this book? Or... <laughs> Is this book a book that mainly Catholics and Orthodox people are going to appreciate? That just seems like it would need a case study. I could ask all kinds of questions like that. I could ask questions about the prose. I could ask about specific scenes and specific lines. But this is where I want to start. This is what I want. This is what I was thinking about. And I need to, I need you to help me unravel this conundrum that I've been having in reading it. Okay. Can, can we, can we start there? Can you help me solve a problem? We will do our best. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no promises. Okay. Yeah. Never make a promise to, to a question you haven't heard yet. Uh, okay. So this book is a book that I'm marking up a lot. I'm sure this, yeah, you guys too. feel the same way. I'm sure our mm-hmm. listeners feel the same way. There's a lot of, you know, I wrote that piece recently about how I kind of mark up books and I'm doing a lot. I'm employing my system extensively in this book. Yeah. Yeah. There is what I, you know, there is a lot of commonplace quotes from this book, a lot of question marks in the, um, in the margins. So what I was thinking about is that this book for me feels a lot like a series of commonplace quotes with a lot of question marks in between them. <laughs> and what I mean by that is not that I necessarily am questioning, uh, do I agree or disagree with what this particular character is saying in this moment although like i think the the book invites that it's more of is that what else is this book other than a whole bunch of commonplace quotes and i don't say that in a way to be like deprecating because the commonplace books the commonplace quotes are very compelling another way of saying this is this book says on the cover that it is a novel in what ways is this book a novel and not just a series of commonplace quotes? And again, though I'm saying this in a very caricatured way, so it sounds like yeah. I'm being deprecating. I don't mean it that way, but I want to get at like well, the novel aspects of this book to see if we can unravel some of that and give the context for the commonplace quotes that are so meaningful. We could spend a whole yeah. episode just listing the quotes that we think are meaningful, and we we can do that if you want. But I want to get at like what is the like. The, the narrative, the novelistic essence of this book, because it claims to be a novel, but it doesn't read like many other novels, even novels of ideas. Um, Heidi, you've well, this is your first time reading it. Right. So the question that's going to come out of this little preamble here for me is twofold. One, do you find yourself running into a similar conundrum? And two, what is the answer to the conundrum? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. I mean, this is book very rich in spiritual reflection. I think it's mm-hmm. also a book very rich in, although very, maybe, maybe the better word is deep, um, in spiritual torment. And I think that's where the novel part mm-hmm. becomes really important that the, there's this mm-hmm. juxtaposition between the fate, the, 
the beauty and the faith of this priest and the intense suffering of this priest and of the entire village and all of the people which he encounters. Um, and part of the suffering that he experiences is their rejection and ridicule uh, and also their very deep spiritual and physical suffering. And so I think that the novel in order for the the reflections to shine, as you're calling the commonplace quotes, like is in order for those reflections to shine with a greater weight, it would, this would, I don't think this book would be as powerful if it was, an, if it was a series of essays. The reason that, that the reflections carry such gravitas and such luminosity is because they're against a backdrop as, of what he calls like a veneer of sinful slime. Right. And I, and I, and also his own willing absorption of uh, the sufferings and sins and sicknesses of his flock um, and his own bewilderment and anguish as personally and I guess professionally question mark. Is that the right word? Um, and, and so I think that it does need to have that backdrop in order for those reflections to feel as powerful as they are. And I think that's the novel part. Sean, you've read this before. Is this just like the, this question that I'm raising and that Heidi's responding to not something that is meaningful to you because you know how it ends? Or <laughs> how, how do you feel about that reading it again? I don't think knowing the ending changes changes much in terms of this question. I think it's a, a good question uh, because it is an unusual book. And I feel that uh, even having read it before and knowing the ending, I, I think it is, it's, is right to call it a novel or the way that in which it works as a novel, like Heidi said, is that it it's dealing with the conscience, the consciousness of, of an individual and what makes it different from a lecture or a series of essays uh, is that, and I think the, your, the pattern that you notice in the, those commonplace passages and how they, and the, the rate at which they pop up is that we are, we're following the, the mind of an individual as he comes to these conclusions or epiphanies or has them, hmm. you know, uttered to him. So yeah. they, right, uh, the, the human experience that we're coming along, uh, for with is, that kind of struggling through confusion to moments of clarity. Uh, and then <laughs> uh, surely you've experienced this. Everyone has experienced this where as soon as you feel like you have something figured out or, uh, or you understand something clearly, it slips away or a greater confusion uh, or a, a greater complexity reveals itself. So you kind of move from these moments of, clarity back to these moments of confusion and vice versa. It's interesting. I mean, I agree with what y'all are saying that the book, I mean, I think it's a right choice to have these passages that are redacted. Yeah. Um, yeah. We should it, talk about that. It, it re, I mean, to me, it's the first step towards introducing or heightening a sense of mis mystery right. that, that's in the book. Like that, you know, that, that there's something go that it's like a foreshadowing, it seems like, of 
some some other mystery that's going to come up later. Yeah. It read this book reminds me of reading like the you know the journals of Thomas Merton or the prayer journals mm-hmm. of Flannery O'Connor or someone like that, um, where the rest of the characters really don't matter. <laughs> and I'm having a, like I, I don't mean that they don't matter as people; they just right, don't matter right. to the sort of essential narrative. And that's such an unusual thing for what for a novel. If you're reading yes. Thomas Merton's journals, like you just know that like, unless it's like his best friend or someone that comes up all the time, that it's just a person that he met. And again, from from a narrative perspective, we accept that in real life, a journal can't you know, an edited copy of journals can't comprehensively help you get to know every person that he's come across. But in a novel, you tend to, we tend to be conditioned if you want to, to expect recurring characters to mean something or to matter or to change him or be changed by him or whatever. And it's hard to get a grasp of who matters most and do these characters represent something? Do they not represent something like all the things that we're used to doing when we're reading? Yeah. Are, it, that's slippery in this book. And like, and that makes it hard to, you know, I, I think a lot of in a story about like signposts, what's the audience grasping onto that helps you reveal what you're, what the, the story is trying to be or trying to do with the kind of book it's trying to be or film that it's trying to be. So I've been thinking a lot, what are the signposts? What are the things that this book wants us to grasp onto that is revealing what it is? Tidy, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I think that you're getting to the heart of the book if you're looking for nothing more than the full weight of human suffering. Like this is, there's uh, like the doctor who killed himself, like that ha- has just that was so moving to me like i was driving along to target just like getting all teary as i was listening to it in the car like it's i think that this is i'm even stumbling over answering this question because i i can imagine our novelist like sitting and thinking to himself what kinds of people would our priest here would my unnamed priest need to encounter to bring him to the brink of spiritual despair and yet hold on to faith. And, and, and that, uh, the kind of temptations and dangers that will he need to encounter, um, to make his journey, um, his spiritual journey and his, uh, meaningful and his spiritual reflections profound um, without them feeling like an essay, but actually tethering them to some kind of real and meaningful human experience, um, whether his own or somebody else's. And I don't, I mean, I don't, I wouldn't presume to know how um, Bernanos created these characters, but if it were me, that's what I would be thinking. And I would be thinking what kinds of people would be in a village who could suffer, um, and, and challenge this priest so that he says, it's not, you know, to lose your faith is not the same as losing your keys. It's simply to stop li- living by it. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then give him the moral courage and the humility to be able Good to cling to quote, faith. By the way. Right. Yeah. <laughs> to be able to cling to faith without, um, without congratulating himself for it. And, and, and I think that there is a, um, 
a, it's to your point, David, it, it feels to me less like plot development and more like a series of real encounters that a priest might have that feel entirely disjointed. And yet he does not let himself slip into nihilism. And so if it was more of a cohesive plot, that might feel contrived. But here it just feels like a real choice every single time. Hey, Sean, in the movie, you've seen the movie, right? Yeah. I bet it has the family as the center. Is that right? Mademoiselle Chantal and all that. I haven't seen it. I mean, it's it's like a legendary French... Mm -hmm. Like one of the great, it's on one of the great the movies list. ever. Yeah, it's yeah, on all yeah, the lists. I've just yeah. never watched it. Um, you, I was going to ask, do you remember Sean? Like, how does it does it make these characters into like re- recurring? I mean, I know they're kind of recurring in the book, but you can't keep track of right. all the names anyway. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, there's it's it's been a while since I've seen it, so it's more impressions yeah. than anything yeah, right. else. That's, but that's the same for me. Yeah, yeah, but. If memory serves, it's far more, well, it's just, it's just structured far more around meetings between people. (laughs) Uh, And so the, yeah, the family at the center uh, just is more more present uh, in the movie. Uh, But I mean, it's, it's, it is a, a book that is structured around meetings between people Right. But there's so much of the priest's own thought in between. And those, by the nature of the medium, have to be reduced. Uh, and the time he spends interacting with other people has to be uh, proportionally greater in the film. And it does it does change the experience. So I'll just, I, I like this book a lot, but I'm having trouble with this aspect of kind of like what you're describing, Heidi, in, in the sense that I don't, like I find the the ideas themselves to be quotable, right? Like very compelling. But from a narrative perspective, the idea that they are random encounters or whatever, however you put it, it the, to me that just doesn't like I'm trying to think of how to say this. The book so far, I think what I'm having trouble with it from a novelistic perspective is the idea that there is some kind of causation leading to the contemplation. I don't think the book makes clear enough how the encounters are leading to th- him turning into like, you know, Thomas Merton <laughs> um, or where his like, what, where the, where the, the wisdom sort of comes from. It feels a little bit that, that part feels, you know, you use the word contrived Heidi and I'm trying to figure out how that's not contrived and I don't always think contrived is the the bad word that people use it as. Like some, sometimes storytelling is about contriving things. <laughs> um, but I'm just, I've been having trouble figuring out that part of it. And so I, maybe you can help me there, Heidi. Like, do you not, do they, the randomness of them maybe is what it is, but I just don't, I don't maybe. understand the development in that sense. Like, again, I'm bringing this up because I want to later focus on the ideas, but I'm just trying to erase something that I think other people might be having trouble with as well. I 
I get what you're saying, David. I feel like there's multiple books this year that we're reading that have been very different from the what we might call the traditional novel form, right? That we've been having this conversation yeah, for multiple sure. yeah. times. Yeah. And so we're having different kind of novelistic narrative um, experiences in these several, you know, kind of this round of Close Reads books. And it kind of just comes down every time to... I think in this novel specifically, we're we're given a kind of person who is the priest. And in a diary, when you're writing a diary, you don't do causation. You just say, this thing happened. It made me think and feel this way. And you don't create a narrative in a diary. You just tell the thing you're thinking and feeling and its context. And so I think it feels very much like a diary. Like, I think if you picked up my journal, you'd oh, have sure. the exact same experience. You'd be like, wow. This person is thinking and feeling a lot of things with just like some walk in the woods or whatever, right? And um, <laughs> or a conversation. And and so I, I think in that way, it feels exactly like the title, the diary of a country priest. And that's what mm -hmm. we have. Yeah. Um, but it is not a typical novel. Um, I think they I think that Bernano succeeds in giving us the diary of a country priest. Um, and and that's that's what it is. Sure. Um, but to your point, I think whenever you have a, a novel that doesn't fit into, um, kind of an accepted mode of creative storytelling for a novel, it create, it makes the reader disoriented and either like, oh, this is interesting, yeah. or I'm dissatisfied with this and I wish it was more like this or whatever. And I think that that we've had that experience multiple times. Um, in the last several books. And I think it's a totally valid experience. Um, but I, this novel does not, it isn't, I don't know French novels very well. And so I don't know if there are more like this. Um, and I'm learning like a ton about, about French life that I'm, I feel like I'm orienting my, I've had to Google several things as I've been reading it. So I am having the same experience of like, of not exactly knowing what's going on. Like even this last conversation he had with um, Mademoiselle Chantal, like I, I looked, I, I was like, I don't, I don't know what the relationship with her father is that she's describing. Like, and oh, yeah. I couldn't figure out if there was like, what was, what was the nature of their relationship? <laughs> and I don't know if that's because I'm not reading well enough or if it's, because it's hidden, because it's Obscured. confessional, right? Like, right. and so I am, I I feel a bit disoriented in the midst of this novel, but I think I just accept it on its terms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, David, back to your question about how this novel is revealing to us what kind of a thing it is. We, the logic seems, or is sometimes hard to follow, I think because, uh, as Heidi said, this is it's structured as a diary. And until we know the man writing the diary, we don't understand the logic, right? Why one experience might prompt a particular train of thought for him. But I think that's becoming easier as we go, go on through the novel. All right. We, it's not so surprising now when he uh, mentions that he had his catechism class and then he launches into a long, reflection right. on innocence and sin and lust. <laughs> oh, it's because all the kids are wicked. 
Uh, right. And, uh, but it takes time to come to understand how he thinks uh, in the same way that you, right, uh, someone you've known for a long time, a really close longtime friend, uh, you can witness an external stimulus and then you know, immediately look to them because you know this is the kind of thing that provokes them or this is the kind of this is the way that I know my friend is going to react to this thing that we just saw or heard. Uh, but you don't have that instinct about strangers or people that you've just met. And the we're also getting to the point in these chapters where he is beginning to edit the diary. So there too. Uh, like redact the pages and certainly yeah. certain things out. Yeah. 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 yeah he, he says that he's determined not to destroy it. So he's come to think about it in a different way. And now he's beginning to sort of, at least to some degree, shape or curate what's here. Uh, so that's He's also becoming helps. self-aware about the, an audience. That's right. Yeah. And so I think <laughs> as we go on, it's going to become easier and easier to, to see. I think the other thing to, maybe to, to look out for uh, is a kind of symbolic significance to the things that are taking place, uh, even though uh, a a thick plot is not <laughs> cohering. Uh, although that's true, too. There is a, a, a mini plot that is taking center stage in the, the family drama of the, you know, the local nobility. But there are actions and uh, exchanges that, that may have a symbolic significance uh, outside of the plot itself. So in chapter four, when he, uh, yeah, he's had his, he has his confrontation with the daughter in the church and he sees and contemplates the sorrow in her face and he you know, imagines himself taking it into himself. And uh, it's, uh, it's almost that same instant that the pain in his stomach comes back, uh, which seems plot-wise a minor detail, uh, but the symbolic significance of him taking taking the suffering of his parishioners upon himself and then having it manifest physically almost immediately uh, is is significant. How do you you? I mean, I guess that's where the pathos of the book is, right? Is is in his in his suffering, right? Yeah, yeah, and in others, and in the the spiritual consolation he wants to offer, but feels like he can't. And we, even as the readers, are not sure if he is or not because we only see it mm-hmm. through his eyes, which is why it needs to be a diary, right? I'm thinking about his encounter with the doctor when he, I guess like that was just so moving to me when he is, when the doctor uh, indicts the church and then he says nothing. And then says, I, I don't feel like I did wrong. Sometimes it's only God who can carry that. Right. And then, and then later on we find out he's dead. He committed suicide like that. If I were, if I were him, I would just feel the weight of that so much and not, and we don't know, like we even as the readers don't know what what grace is being uh, is 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 being filtered out into the world through his humility and his obedience and his taking on, as you're saying, Sean, um, the sins and sufferings of his parishioners, who still, to your point, are just keep making 
dreadful, dreadful life choices. Yeah. So what do you think, this is maybe more concrete, but why do you think, or is that is what you've just said, Heidi, maybe an explanation for why uh, it's the the death of the doctor is the first time or the first place where he begins to edit the diary. That's the first instance where pages are torn out. Uh, things he's written in the margin are, are painstakingly erased. Uh, and then what we get instead in the, in the absence of, you know, a number of pages, we get one terse paragraph that only mentions the, conjecture that it was an an accident an accidental death right uh, i think what's he's going hit on there? hard by the death of the doctor i think i'm reading between the lines and because it's an actual um it's a fact like it's not something that's taking place in his head it's something that happened in the external world uh yeah. that that is not a reflection it's a real thing a real dark horrible thing and up until that point he has been able in some in some ways to keep his ministry as an abstraction and um and yet and then here things begin the dominoes begin to fall and he's not sure what he's responsible for and what he's not and it almost feels like he's too afraid to even write that down like you can just feel this uh compelling psychological and spiritual um conflict within mm-hmm. this priest um all the more compelling because he can't even really face it himself sometimes well i wonder too and because this question really exists for me still uh is it entirely self-serving maybe isn't the right word because when he writes these things he might not imagine other people reading them um, but is it entirely selfish to omit or tear out the longer discussion of the doctor's death because he feels responsible uh, or is it partly in service service uh, to the doctor in the sense that whatever he wrote is now a record of a, a clergyman calling his death a suicide because that's that's significant too when the church what the church says about the nature of this person's death. Right. That's uh, right. Yeah. Who you is know, you he think of like the trying death of Ophelia to in Hamlet. protect? Yeah. Like what yeah. is he protecting? What is he sheltering in his redaction? Um, right. And, and again, to your point of, we see the convergence of his physical illness with these external events as this kind of symbolic I don't know if it's, it's some, there's some symbolic like internal wound, right? That um, almost like a stigmata a little bit, like he's bear, mm-hmm. the more sufferings that he bears spiritually, the more he suffers physically is that, and he, he goes back and forth between seeing it as a punishment and as a grace. And then he, he says, I wish I was suffering like a saint. I wish that this suffering was happening to me because I was being made into a saint, but I know it's just because. I'm too weak to bear my ministry. Yeah. So I don't know. I think that those are good questions. I'm probably deliberately ambiguous 
And right. like so much is said through the redaction, through the la- through the what isn't said. It's like a really interesting way of creating subtext. Yeah, you get the suggestion of all of this absent text, and then one carefully crafted paragraph uh, that seems designed to be ambiguous. Are you talking about on page one hundred seven? One hundred seven. Yeah. Yeah, he's thinking about his childhood. Then then it says the next few pages of this exercise book in which this diary has been written or have been torn out, a few words still left in the margin have been very carefully erased. And then he mentions that the doctor was found with his body already stiff. And then it says they think that his shotgun went off by accident when he tried to disentangle itself from the branches. Then right after that, he says, for several days, I've been thinking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking a great deal about sin. Yeah. And he, the next, the rest of the chapter is a pretty uh, complicated and, and like extensive contemplation of the notion of sin as illness. Yes. As sin as cancer. Right. And those metaphors don't stop. <laughs> uh, right. As, as it goes on. Now we could have a debate about original sin if we want to. Uh, the theological point of that. But he's talking about the, you know, there's this line where he says the transgression on 108, the transgression itself is only the eruption and the symptoms which most impress outsiders aren't always the gravest and most disquieting. I believe, in fact, I am certain that many men never give out the whole of themselves, their deepest truth. They live on the surface and yet so rich is the soil of humanity that even this thin outer layer is able to yield a kind of meager harvest which gives the illusion of real living. So uh, he's he talks about sin as a cancer eating into us, which is painless, like tumors that you don't know are there. Yeah. He talks about, um, a little bit further on, he talks about inner joy. So he, there's a line where it says, um, he's, talking about, he's talking about one of the men he says his soul is gay at this very moment. Now that I no longer observed his face, a certain note in his voice surprised me. Though grave, it never could be called a sad voice. It vibrates with imperceptible inner joy. So profound a joy that nothing in this world could shake it, like the vast calm waters under storms. And then he also talks about, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of references to, to eyes, to your eyes speaking, to your eyes taking things in. It's maybe a half dozen times in this section. Some kind of reference to that is brought up. So I want to talk a little bit about, I want to know what you guys think of this. On the one hand, sin as like the tumor that is eating you out from the inside. It's, it's there. The eruption of the sin is, is, is the sinful eruption, whatever you want to say is, is not this just the symptom um but then also the idea of this inner joy and so those are both two like under the surface inner inner things right that are competing to to be present in us and then you've got the idea of the eyes and i'm wondering how you think he's trying to i mean we're not to the end of the book but what is he what what is he doing here with all these these images of of the inner life if you will and maybe the question is too abstract but this is a book about contemplation about the inner yeah. life and then he's talking about these two kinds of things that are warring inside of inside of a person and yet here's maybe this is where i can focus the question a little 
and yet he himself seems to be think seems to be feeling that as he takes on the sin it's not as if the other people are being filled with joy or that his own suffering is providing him with some kind of joy too so why he looks at this person and he says this person has joy but he's not feeling the joy and he's not seeing the joy mm-hmm. elsewhere and so is is this a matter of like is this the conflict of the book is this the idea that he 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 can't he's trying to do his job but that joy is just not available i i don't know if the joy in that moment i don't know if the joy itself is so important as it's its emergence in that particular character in that particular moment uh it's de torsi talking about they're still talking about the death of his friend mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and the joy is that's on 115. Su- yeah. The joy strikes him because it's surprising in that moment. And, and I think this, this does touch something that's going on throughout the novel. And that, that line you read seems like one of the m- more important <laughs> lines uh, on 108. I believe, in fact, I'm certain that many men never give out the whole of themselves, their deepest truth. And, uh, they live on the surface, and yet so rich is the soil of humanity that even this thin outer layer is able to yield a kind of meager harvest, which gives the illusion of real living. Uh, and that's just a description of all most human interaction. And uh, as the priest in this community, he's found that so difficult to deal with. And he talks about the the habits people learn, the confessional habits that people learn, that... Uh, you just develop this way, this rote way of coming to the priest and saying essentially the same thing every time. And it never really gets beyond this surface uh, rote act. And it's so frustrating to him. Uh, and yet he's, like we saw in chapter four, he drags Mademoiselle Chantal basically to the confessional. Uh, he's desperate to get at this thing that is deeper the the whole self uh in himself in his parishioners and so those little glimpses of things like the joy in de torsi uh i think are you know the the little encouragements that this is possible that there is something more there uh there's something depressing about realizing that you're only seeing a little bit of each person <laughs> that you encounter. Uh, but on the flip side, there's some promise there when you recall that about people who seem rather, uh, <laughs> rather uh, depressing or rather lost on the surface. Go ahead. I've got a question for you, Heidi, <laughs> but go ahead. See, follow with him and then I'll follow with my question. So my priest at our parish um is dying he has terminal cancer and he is like a very robust strong man and an incredible priest and so i keep thinking about him as i'm reading this book um and i've had every every time i've had a conversation with a priest about confession which has been many over the years they all say this they all say confession is you know, I'll even come to the confessional and say, I am here to confess the same sins. And my priest will say every time, that's what we do. That's what we do. 
Like that is the Christian life. And, um, but, and, and in a conversation with him one time, he said, on one hand, that's always very encouraging to me. Like you keep coming back. Like so much of the Christian life is you just show up, you confess again and you, you receive the Eucharist and you, right? Like you just keep showing up. That's what the Christian life is. But then on the other hand, he's, he said, sometimes I also just want to know about you, my, you in the wider sense, not me personally, but you all, right? I want to know about you all's happiness. And I am the in the position of always absorbing your sins, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's real. Like that takes a toll. And that is that is the burden and the glory of a priest. And you brought up earlier at the the at the beginning of the podcast, like David, some questions that you have, like, is this a book that only Catholics or only liturgical, you know, sacramental kinds of Christians can understand? I think the answer to that is no. But I think if you are a part of a liturgical tradition, whether you're a lay person or a priest and you have like an actual devoted sacramental life within the church, this book rings even more true. Although I don't think you need to have that in order to fully enter into the profound, the profundity mm-hmm. and the conflict of this priest, because I think we, whether, even if you're not, even if you're not a Christian, there's so much real suffering in this book that raises these existential questions that of course we as Christians believe to be spiritual, but even those who don't can enter into the conflict of that. What do we do with the fact that this world is so hard to live in and yet we want to be happy? What do we do with that? And and yeah. this book raises that question of like this juxtaposition, this like paradox of death and love. And 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 I I'm like very moved by that. And I love the I love the fact that we have a priest who sees himself as pathetic where I see him as merely, I see him as humble. So I don't think that he would mind if I told this story. Our priest, um, recently he was talking, we had parish council meeting and we're talking about just different issues. You know, I don't even really know how this came up, but he's talking about, uh, you know, this is a time of year leading up to Easter where, people will go to confession if they haven't been in a while and things like that. Right. So he was talking about the idea of they like to introduce confession to children, which this came up in this, this section of the book. Right. And he said that one of the reasons that he wants them to come to confession when they're like, you know, nine, whatever, however old they are is not so that they can necessarily come list all of the things that they do wrong but there's this sense that i mean there is a sense of that too right like unburdening yourself and all that but he one of the things that he was very passionate about is the idea that uh it's about a relationship and it's about a relation like between the parishioner and the priest and it's about you know the spiritual journey the spiritual life like walking alongside of you and and helping kind of like participating and engaging and aiding in your spiritual life and it's like a lot of times people just you know when they just come and they just kind of unburden themselves with a couple things. And then maybe it is the same things every time or not, but they don't, they don't realize the extent to which the priest wants to be an aid wants to be, you know, I, he, I mean, I'm now, I'm kind of like, I'm not using his exact words. I'm, you know, I, I 
can't go into like the details of the conversation, obviously, <laughs> but that that relationship is so important to a good priest. And I, you know, we have a friend who we were chatting with on text who I'm not going to say a name here, but her husband is a pastor. And she said, it's a very difficult or triggering book to read as a pastor's wife. This is not a, I think they're maybe Baptist or some something like that. I don't, I don't know. I, I can't remember exactly. I apologize for that. Uh, Cause I know she's listening right now and now I feel terrible. Um, <laughs> but even if you're not an Orthodox or a Catholic priest, you still as a good pastor want to have a relationship and be an aid, a spiritual aid to the people who are in your community, who you have leadership over. And, and one of the things that is in the, that stands out to me in this book is that he has that longing to be in, have a relationship with these people and how, and it, it hurts him that they resist that, that they don't see that that's what he is there for, that that is what his longing is. And so when he tries to engage with them, it's almost like they're afraid of him. And the joy, I think this plays in, this is related to that question of the joy. Because, is it, who did you say, Detorsi? Yeah. Um, he says he's filled with this, this, this inner, what is it? Uh, an inner, imperceptible inner joy. And it kind of reminds me of like the joy, the surprise by joy concept in, in Lewis, but it seems like he is a bit jealous in a way. Like, how can you take on the sin? How can you take on the cancer, the pain of other people such that it inflicts you with stomach pains and yet have this joy? Still be joyful. Yeah. And so that's like the inner con this, this conflict for him. Like he, he has this desire both to take on the struggles of these people. And yet he's also seems to like have this, bubbling despair on the edge of things that he never is able to have to feel that imperceptible inner joy. Uh, maybe that's the imperceptible, maybe joy is, joy is also imperceptible to the people who have it. <laughs> maybe that's part of that imperceptibility. Maybe DeTorsi doesn't feel the joy himself. It's just, it emanates Isn't from that him. who um, our priest is referring to though, when he says that he always has joy, it's DeTorsi, right? Yeah, that's right. And so, again, we have a priest, both priests, who offer something to each other that they don't mm. know that they're doing, right? Mm -hmm. Like, they don't, they don't know. They have mm. such a deep sense of their own inadequacy to, or insufficiency to the fallenness of the world, and the suffering, and the sickness, and the sins of the people they encounter, and yet they they feel insufficient to it. And yet they are emanating a joy that they don't even know they're feeling. I think that's really compelling. Mm. Yeah. I. There's just so many, there's so many beautiful things about, about both of their ministries. DeTorsi is my favorite character. I like him so much. <laughs> um, and I love their relationship because I think that they keep offering to each other this um, desire, like this care to to one another that they aren't doing for themselves. Like they both keep pouring themselves out um, like a drink offering, right? As scripture says, and, and, and the other one says, take care of yourself. And, and they, 
the other one just keeps doing it. But they've somehow strengthened each other for the fight and for the um for the journey. Um I'm gonna this is what I'm about to say is not a complaint about our audience. It's just a fact. So if you're listening, I don't mean it that way. I was checking the numbers and the first two up the first episode of this book is one of the lowest listenership numbers we've had in, in a long time. Not surprising given to me, just given the the book and how busy everyone is in this kind of, this time of this time of year and so forth. Do you why do you why do you think that might be? I mean, we you know we can only guess. Um, and I don't. And again, I'm not meaning this as a complaint. Like it's just. I didn't expect this to be like reading a Jane Austen novel or like Agatha Christie or something where just the, you know, we're even going to get the the people who listen just sporadically to tune in. And I'm going to say one more thing before I turn it over to you. I was thinking about how difficult I'm finding this book to read. And I don't mean to understand. I mean, to pick up and read and not because I don't like it, but maybe because it's like, uh, just it pokes you, right? Oh. Uh, like when I read about him being up in the middle of the night with like this form of like insomnia and facing some kind of inner turmoil, that is a little close to home. <laughs> like that's very <laughs> difficult. Yeah, Heidi, I know you have insomnia. You probably like we're both people who have a hard time sleeping and Word. maybe maybe feel similarly at three in the morning mm-hmm. when that insomnia hits and like just existential dread yes. the existential dread yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so like that hits a little close to home and i that's so why I, I find like i do most of my reading for the show at night i just do because that's when i have time like i try to read yeah. in the shop for the five minutes you know it'll be like i'll have five minutes here and there to pick it up but that's hard to get any momentum on a book like this and i'm wondering if you think that those are like these things are related like do you think other people are feeling the same way? Like, how, how, this book seems like it'd be very up your alley, but I'm also wondering if you oh, yeah. understand, like, you empathize with what I'm, oh, yeah. with what I'm getting at. I think of Loris a lot actually when I read Both this book. And. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, Sean, I mean, I don't know. We don't. Maybe we don't know as much about your existential dread. So maybe you should comment on this first. <laughs> you have a newborn uh, in your house. Yeah, that's true. It's it's a different kind of thing, uh, and I don't, I don't have, I don't have insomnia the way that you all do uh, <laughs> consistently. But I have had periods in my life, some uh, fairly recently, where the insomnia uh, comes. And it's usually, uh, I mean, in the last three years, we've moved cross-country twice. Uh, so uh, yeah. in, in recent recent memory there have been these big transitional moments and times where i've been having to contemplate for the for my whole family on behalf of my whole family uh, these major life changes uh, yeah and uh you know and, and that has come with that stress has always manifested in you know, poor sleep and insomnia yeah it must yeah. be a good sign that i'm feeling pretty settled right now <laughs> because i sleep pretty well you know, on baby aside. Yeah. Uh, in between, but, in between the, the, the tears. Yeah. That's not right. your, not exactly. your tears, not my tears, but I, I, I can still, I can still sympathize. I think just as a, as a human, uh, it's hard. I, I've read this book, uh, in its entirety before and I really, uh, enjoy it, but I don't relish it. 
And so it is, it is a, a maybe chore is the wrong word, but it's, it's a labor to read through it uh, because uh, it is uh, this sort of uh, lacerating experience to come face to face with believable <laughs> human suffering. Uh, it's, it's sort of the, the less comedic version of watching the dinner party off episode of the office. <laughs> uh, just the kind of painful awkwardness that you can't my wife's favorite episode uh, yeah you, you can't look away from and yet it's agonizing to be in the same in the presence Snip, of it <laughs> <laughs> and uh and this is you know like I said a less a less funny <laughs> less cheery version of that you're just uh you're here in the presence of uh, suffering people and sometimes people inflicting, you know, wounds upon each other. And, and uh, this priest in particular who's silently receiving those wounds and uh, taking on suffering on behalf of others. And it's not, it's not enjoyable. So I can, I can definitely see the, the natural obstacles to, uh, you know, really, relishing the uh the opportunity to curl up with this <laughs> with this book yeah right before bed yeah <laughs> i mean for the same reason maybe that uh, you take 11 melatonin after you read this <laughs> <laughs> the same reason that you wouldn't want to uh that you wouldn't want to go to confession i mean i think there's a parallel there uh it's good yeah i mean there's there's something revealing about it that you instinctively avoid do you, so Heidi you can you want to respond to that no I think that's question? right I also think it's just to to the questions that you raised earlier in 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 the show like it's a bit confusing to read and orient yeah. yourself to um it's the kind of book that people recommend and you pick up and read a couple chapters and are like I don't know I might finish this later <laughs> and you know um and that's I mean, that's partly because of translation, partly because of the structure, partly because we don't know much as much about the culture and the kind. We don't necessarily know what categories to put people in. You know, I pick up like you brought up Agatha Christie, different kind of novel, obviously. But I know where to put in. I know I don't I'm not English, but I I know the categories to put the different characters in. And in this novel, I don't. I'm learning. It's teaching me as we go. And Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that there's. Um, and along with kind of, as you're pointing out, like the weight of it emotionally and spiritually, um, it's one of those books that you, that you drink almost like a tonic. And then, I mean, I'm not to the end yet, but you get, and you're like, wow, I'm really glad I read that. And there, even the introduction in this edition says that, you know, the first time a Catholic monk read this, he was in seminary and he was like, that was a lot. right? And then he returned (laughs) to it several years later and loved it. Um, so I think, that 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 but that's such a good it's such a good thing to do um to you know yeah and I'd, be, I'd be curious it. to know yeah i'd be curious to know uh from our readers if if they're struggling to finish but make it to the end or if you know they're struggling to find the motivation to read but make it to the end with us i'd be curious to hear how many of them think they might not have if they were on their own this seems like a book that uh, if you have some added impetus of 
knowing that you're reading it along with other people or uh, reading it for a book club or uh, reading it you know, on some kind of college course, if that's if that's more helpful. I mean, it's, it's always statistically more helpful, but if it makes right. a particular difference in this case where uh, it's uh, a tough one to sort of stumble onto, stumble upon or pick up on your own and, and make it all the way through. Uh, Sean, you, you're a big uh, Moriak fan, right? Yeah, I am. How does his work compare to this? He also is a French Catholic writer. That's right. Yeah. Francois Moriak, uh, more or less contemporary of Bernanos. He's far more. Yeah. They're born three years apart. He's far more straightforward. Uh, reading Moriak is a lot. There is something, uh, French <laughs> about them both that they have in common, uh, sort of, je ne sais quoi. uh, but, but even, even accounting for that, yeah, the existentialism. Reading, yeah, that's right. Reading Moriak is a lot more like reading uh, somebody like Graham Greene. Uh, and even even Moriak's best-known novel or his most successful novel is also written in diary form. But it's it's not like this. <laughs> it's, it's, far, it's far more of a discernible linear plot. Uh, and you don't get lost in a uh, sort of vague... Uh, absence of logical connections mm-hmm. from one thought to the next. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it is it is very different. It's less contemplative. Uh, and I don't think that's because Moriak is less contemplative, but uh, his style is is not this. So the reason I bring that up is because, well, all three of us, but, you, I, well, maybe, I don't want to, well, maybe you especially are a huge fan of uh the 20th century catholic novel and i'm heidi i know you would fall in you're a fan of those books too uh but sean you yeah you wrote your master's (laughs) thesis on the subject didn't you uh yeah that's right so where do you think uh bernanos kind of like fits into that category of like the 20th century catholic novel uh i need you to rank them (laughs) (laughs) you know the it is that's that's hard because he is, uh, this novel is distinct. I've only I've only read a, one other Bernanos novel, and it was very like and unlike Diary of a Country Priest. But I would say maybe he's one of the more abstract of the 20th century Catholic novelists. He, I would compare his fiction to someone like Charles Williams before I would compare it to to Graham Greene or mm. Flannery O'Connor or. Mm. You know, yeah, yeah, that that's interesting, Charles. Yeah, that that's I have not thought about that. That's fascinating. I don't know that. See, there's not enough. There's not as many like uh like weird demons and stuff in this in this book. At least, yeah, not on the surface. Not yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Heidi, I'm gonna put a um chat up on the Substack the, using the Substack chat feature when this episode goes up because I want to hear from our listeners who are not. Catholic. Mm. I mean, the Catholic, you can chime in on this, but I'd be curious to know um, for the, for, for listeners who are not Catholic, how this book hits. So to speak, I don't know any other word to use in the, in the moment, but like what is most intriguing? Is it, is it sort of like reading a uh, textbook where you, it's the, you're, there's a curiosity about, you know, uh, 
butterflies, but you're not a butterfly. So, you know, <laughs> but it's really interesting to learn about them. Um, or is, is there something, is there, it's is there like more to, to it than bat. that? Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so I'm curious about that, but I would, I'm, uh, I'd like to give you a chance to kind of anticipate that. <laughs> what do you think? Go ahead. Yeah. I, well, I mean, I guess I don't know your question fully. If you wanted to add to that. Go ahead. Let's see. Okay. I, this is more fun. Yeah. This is more okay. fun. It's fun to- <laughs> you just guess and answer it. Anyway. I, I don't think this is a specifically Catholic novel in the, mm-hmm. um, in, in the way that some others are. I see it more to your point. It doesn't have exact parallels to Graham Greene, but I'm thinking of a, a novel that we did on the show. Um, we did The Power and the Glory and we did The End of the Affair. And I think in The End of the Affair, that is a bit more how I see this novel, that it is specifically Catholic in the sense that that sin has a, a weight and that there... Oh, hold on. Let me, let me think about how to phrase this. There are sacramental realities that modern people butt their heads against and continually resist, even if they are believers in God. And, and that I think is one of the reasons why the Catholic novel works so well in a contemporary context and in a 20th century context is because Catholicism um, has this sacramental vision of the world and that there are things in the unseen realm that modern people reject and resist as, and that the Catholic vision of reality sees as incontrovertibly true and having direct consequences within the seen realm, that there are these things in the unseen realm. For example, um, and I'll give it, that sounds very abstract, but in the end of the affair, um, when, uh, when Sarah dies, she's cremated. And there is a, and, and the liturgical traditions really don't believe in that, right? Burial, because the body is going to be resurrected. And so mm-hmm. to treat the body, uh, by, to atomize the body is therefore a profound desecration of the image of God in the body, right? And, and that's something that kind of, um, that's something that, maybe definitely modern thinking kind of people don't get that. Right. Um, And so just don't understand it It seems kind of silly and ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And yet it causes so much angst and travail within the novel. And I think that that, that has uh, that, that way of being Catholic is true in this novel as well, that there are things that are happening. Like when Mademoiselle Chantel comes to confession and she has, she's, is not truly repentant of her pride and is there to indict other sinners rather than than take on her own sin and bring it to God. He rebukes her so strongly for that because the confessional is sacred. It's a sacrament and she's heaping sin on her own head by using it in such a in such a way, right? Mm-hmm. And so to be Catholic, to be Anglican, to be Orthodox gives another gives a a, a weight of meaning there. Um, but I also think that it's it's more generically Christian, just in the sense that we that there's this um, this spiritual 
reality and this, this conflict between grace and sin or apparent conflict between grace and sin, um, that, that is just kind of more widely Christian and existential. And that seems to be the, the level on which the novel work like shines is like luminous is that is that Mm. realm of, of the faith. Um, and, and that's where I'm finding the most meaningful contemplation in this novel. Hmm. Let's wrap it up there. That's Sean. You good with that? That's great. Um, although, although hold on before we go, I need to ask you, um, both of you, uh, you didn't get to be on the, um, the little preview of the bracket. Of our adaptations bracket. I thought you were going to ask me about March Madness. When we record this, do you want to talk about that? No. Do you have thoughts? Okay. This is more real than March Madness. Um, (laughs) When we're recording this, we're down to our final four. So our final four is Pride and Prejudice, the 2019 Little Women. They're up against each other. And then the Fellowship of the Ring is up against Anne of Green Gables. So Heidi, I want to ask you first, Anne of Green Gables or the Fellowship of the Ring? Anne of Green Gables by a mile. Pride and Prejudice 2015 or Little Women 2019? Pride and Prejudice. Oh, wait, and hold then, on. Pride and Prejudice 2015. Which one? No, is 2000, that? 2000, or 1995. I'm sorry. Yeah. Sorry. So sorry. that's the one with Colin Firth. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. 95, 95. Yeah, sorry. Versus Little Women 2019, which is really good. Little, Little Women is great, but I still think that the 2005 Pride and Prejudice, and you and I have had a SmackDown mm-hmm. about this before. So I know you disagree with me, but I think it's better. Than the um, other Pride and Prejudice, than the Karen Knightley, the Joe version. Wright, yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, the, yeah, I understand. Most of I'm like eighty <laughs> percent in that oh, one yeah. for the for the bit at this point. Um, but butt. I, I'm more into, I'm more less of a fan of the Pride and Prejudice that. Well, Kier, you really the, like Little Women. Ninety five. Oh, I love the Little Women movie. I was yeah. a Little Women in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. uh, okay, Anne of Green Gables or ninety five Pride and Prejudice. Anne of Green Gables is going to win it. You think? Yeah, I think Anne of Green Gables is going to win the whole thing handily. That's what I think. Oh, and I think it See, should. I would vote for that too, but I don't know that... I don't know. A Pride and Prejudice has some, has some weight behind it. Sean, what do you think? Well, first of all, Fellowship or Anne? <laughs> uh, uh, probably. See, and I, I... The only surprise here for me was the, the Little Women Harry Potter matchup. Yeah, that was uh, bizarre. Harry these, Potter getting through getting through this thing was just strange. I know, crazy. And it last the last round, it beat something wild, right? Like, bro, beat Brideshead. Yeah, what's with you people? <laughs> I know. The other one that should have gone farther for sure is To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, that, but that, that not, should got, be in the final four at least. You think it should have beat the Fellowship of the Ring? Yes. That was, I, it was that was the closest one of the leading matches. Yep. But I was not surprised from the beginning. I was expecting to see Pride and Prejudice and uh, and Anne. and he, at this point. And uh, so I really I'd probably pick Anne over Fellowship. And uh, and I really I I guess that's the horse I'd have to back against Pride and Prejudice even. But that's a tough call. I can't wait for someone to make. Oh, yes, I'm going to actually say this. I can't wait for someone to make an actually good Pride and Prejudice. It's going to be a great day. I think all the time about who could play Elizabeth (laughs) Bennett. I just, I don't, 
I don't know who could. I know you've said Florence mm. Pugh, but I don't think so. So I just I just don't know who's old. Yeah. There's no one like in that generation that's right right now. Yeah. I totally agree. Or even before, like I to your point, there's to have that that's just a really hard part to play. I think yeah. by the nature of it and by the nature of Elizabeth Bennett and just by the like the fan base. Right. It's like yeah, playing right. Hamlet. The the everything that's attached to the role. Yeah. Which is why everybody approaches Hamlet in like different ways. So right. you would have to reinterpret Elizabeth Bennett. Yeah. In yeah. a way that's completely different than Jennifer Ely or mm-hmm. Kira Knightley or at Whatever. least, Whoever. at least Jennifer Ely has a like a spark of fun to her and a really sweet smile. Like there's, there is a sweetness to her, and most Elizabeth Bennets are played just snarky, and she's not snarky. Yeah. So, yeah, I, sh- yeah. That movie is I mean, that adaptation is is close. It's close mm-hmm. to being good. It's just such yeah, a yeah. 90s. I think it is 90, really good. It's just yeah. such a 1990s yeah. BBC. It's too clean. I, you know how I feel about this. It's I too know. clean. Um, uh, what got? What's the one? Like, what are some of? Any, is there anything in this bracket that you you didn't get to give any feedback, Heidi? Mm-hmm. So, is there anything that you like you felt like just got away? Other than um, yeah, I don't. Mockingbird? I don't know. I think that there, like one of the one of the reasons that we do the bracket is to let people interpret it how they will, right? Mm-hmm. We say mm-hmm. you make your own your own criteria. And we're not going to set the terms for you. I we'll think just in a mo- later. right, like I think in a That's movie right. adaptation bracket, the risk is always nostalgia versus insight, right? And um, yeah. and and then also we are as and this has already been said, we we're limited by the um, knowledge of film and by the. Um, the nature of the audience, like we're like sure. a British yep. adaptation is always going to beat out something like To Kill a Mockingbird, but To Kill a Mockingbird is a better movie. And so I think that that is the risk that we take with an adaptation. And we knew that I'm not sure all of the worthiest films made it, but I think some of the best stories made it and some of the most enduring like images in the in people's minds have made it to the worthy place. And so that's good enough for me. That was uh uh, tactful. Yeah. <laughs> and well, and because I am a girl and I love British adaptation. So, and I'm going for Anne of Green Gables because it's the most like one of my favorite books in the world. And so I am not exempt from this. So, so I, it, yeah. Anne is so consistently true to the book, mm-hmm. too, yeah. though. Mm-hmm. And also, yeah, how they cast Anne of Green Gables and they did it. It's just like, that must she- be harder than casting Elizabeth Bennett. And, she and she's her. not clean all the time. Yes. Yeah. yeah that's true. And that's right. Yep. She's incredible. <laughs> Megan follows like, I, I never, she'd be way harder than casting Elizabeth Bennett. And I can't think of a single person who could play Elizabeth Bennett. And so and she nails it. That is good. Objectively. So we're going to have to figure out, we've talked about this, about doing a watch along of the winner. We're going to have oh, to figure yeah. out how we're going to do that if Pride and Prejudice wins. And we could do <laughs> like over two episodes or something because oh, it's like... this would be but, such but a great moment for Pride us and Prejudice is like time together. so many hours. Oh, man. I don't know so how we're going to do that. We may have to choose <laughs> a particular episode from it to do. Um, but, or, or people could just vote for Anne and then we do a watch along of Anne. That's right. And then people can hear us 
all gush about how much we love that movie and how it is uh, yeah. also a nostalgia factor for all of us. That movie was on in my house all the time growing up. Mm-hmm. All the time. Um, that that was like... I think you my can only get it on. on DVD now. For real. See, that's the way it should be. Oh. Um, <laughs> so, At least when okay. I bought it for my kids years ago, I could not find it anywhere yeah. online. I had to buy a physical DVD and a DVD player. <laughs> Because <laughs> it's like some Canadian, some Canadian thing or something. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, the Prince Edward Island Trust is locked, locked it in a vault somewhere. Mm. Um, it's a chief source of revenue. Yeah, we should develop an app that's just it's twenty four seven streaming. Uh, Anna Green Gables. I would pay for that. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I feel like the I don't know. I feel like there's uh, enough people that would, but I don't know if it's enough people that would. Uh, pay for the rights that we'd have to pay for it. I think yeah, it is yeah, the yeah. only movie other than Pride and Prejudice that I can quote from beginning to end from memory, no problem. Not oh. not Dumb yeah, and Dumber. Not Pride and Prejudice. I said Pride and Prejudice. I meant Princess Bride. And oh. I understand the controversy over Princess Bride. I love that hey, movie. It's fine. And I have never read the book. And so to me, it is just childhood, like the never-ending story, right? And like my it's, childhood it's was the never-ending yeah. story and Princess oh, Bride. Yeah. And Anne of Green Gables. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. I can quote all of Princess Bride and all of Anne of Green Gables from memory, beginning to end. Like, Maybe we now. should do a, pr- a yeah, Princess should, Bride should watch along. Yeah. <laughs> and then we should make the people. My hair would be a beautiful raven black. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. So, uh, Sean, I know you need to go. Um, We'll call it. We'll call it the episode here, but I'm sure we'll be able to talk about who ultimately won and any uh, watch along plans that we might have uh, for said victorious uh, cinematic achievement. That's going to be great, John. Thanks, Heidi. Thanks. You're welcome, David. Thank you. As always, <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, for for them, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Mm-hmm.